Let's open our Bibles tonight to the book of Hebrews chapter 12. Once again, Hebrews chapter 12 tonight. Tonight I'm going to be concluding a three-part study I began a couple weeks ago on the topic of parenting. And specifically, we are looking at a modern trend in parenting that uh, has gained a lot of popularity and really over the last uh, 20 years, it's uh, it's become a pretty predominant amongst uh, new parents and younger parents especially. Um, it's not a, a new idea, it's just kind of a new twist on an old idea, but uh, it's a very dangerous one. And it's dangerous in part because it's, it sounds so good on the surface, but it's not until you really get into the details that you realize this is not a Christian philosophy of parenting. And they call this approach gentle parenting. But I say it's anything but gentle because the harshest thing you can do is to prevent a child from learning that they're a sinner and they need a Savior and bringing them to Christ. That's the harshest thing you can do. In fact, Jesus said it were better that a millstone be hung around your neck and you be cast into the sea than it would be to offend one of these little ones. And so we looked a couple weeks ago at, at uh, what this gentle parenting thing is in some detail. And then last week, uh, we looked at uh, what is wrong with this approach in some detail. But tonight, we're going to look to the answer for the problem. As Christians, we believe that the gospel is the answer to every problem that we face. Now, I don't know. We, I know we do not always think in those terms, but that is the foundation of our faith. If every problem that we face at its root is because of sin, and it is, and the gospel is the solution for sin, then the gospel is the answer to every problem, and it's just a matter of us learning how to apply gospel principles to specific problems of life to find that answer and to work it out in our lives. But the gospel literally provides us with the blueprint for making sense of life's confusion, for the resolution of every conflict, and it's the model for Christian living. But some may ask, what does the gospel have to do with parenting? And the answer is everything. Everything. Because as Christian parents, how we parent our children should be centered around the gospel message. And so tonight, the title of this message is Gospel Parenting. Because the gospel is the answer to the godless, worldly, humanist, feminist philosophy that is going under the misnomer of gentle parenting today. Hebrews chapter 12, look with me at verse number 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin, 
And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children, my son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that you would teach us from your word what we need to know. Change us how we need to be changed so that we can be more like Christ when we leave here tonight. And I pray especially for every parent here that we would leave encouraged and challenged to keep our homes and our parenting specifically centered on the message of the gospel. That the answer for sin is not modern psychology or neuroscience. The answer for sin is the gospel. And glorify yourself through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we look in this text at how the gospel informs our philosophy of parenting, I want to very quickly just remind you of the danger that we saw last week of this modern trend known as gentle parenting. There were several key errors that this movement has that we cannot afford to be ignorant of. First of all, it has a wrong view of God. According to the secularists who are pushing this philosophy, there is no God. Many of them are okay if you teach your children about God, but don't teach an authoritarian view of God, you know, one that requires obedience, and certainly don't teach them that there is a God who enforces consequences for sin, a.k.a. punishment, and don't teach that you have to surrender your will to His because, you know, that's violating their individuality and their personhood. The secularist teaches there is no God, but the Christian who believes in God yet still promotes this point of view promotes a very distorted, one-sided view of God. They would teach of a God who is all love and no judgment. A God who doesn't ask you to surrender your will to His, but a God who just simply wants to love you and simply wants to let you know how, how good you really are. They have a wrong view of God. They have a wrong view of God's Word. Of course, the secularists believe that the Bible is nothing more than an ancient book of fairy tales that may have some good tips, but it's certainly not something to be relied on. The Christians who follow the gentle parenting paradigm would uh, use Scripture, but they would take everything out of context and they would accomplish their goal uh, of saying Scripture supports their view by redefining everything. I gave you many quotes last week of how they redefine words like commandments, obey, disobey, sin, punish, train, discipline, etc., etc. They do not, do not let God's Word define itself, but rather they impose their ideas and their notions on the Word of God, and they make it subject to their private interpretation. They have a wrong view of the gospel, and we spent a lot of time talking about this because this is probably the most dangerous aspect of, of this teaching. To them, the gospel is not, about re, re, is not about redemption, it's about reconnection. It's just about, you know, everybody getting back together, but not like, not like God says it should be. 
One quote, God set out to reconnect with His children. And how did He do it? With gentle parenting, so they say. But yet in their teaching, they make a grave error when they state unequivocally that children are not born sinners. Quote, in the positive parenting approach, children are born perfect and need only to be guided through the normal stages and behaviors of childhood. That's talking about gentle parenting, positive parenting. In the punitive parenting approach, children are born sinful and must be forced to submit to superior authority. Now that was a summary by a gentle parenting proponent, supposedly summarizing the superiority of positive or gentle parenting over punitive parenting as they call it, but actually they summed it up very well. They do not believe that children are born sinners. They believe that the only penalty for sin now is just not being as close to God as you could be. They believe that Jesus' death on the cross freed us from the consequences of our mistakes regardless of our repentance. It doesn't matter if you repent. It doesn't matter if you confess. Because of what Jesus did, there are no more consequences. Quote, aren't we emptying the gospel, the cross rather, of its power and its message if we insist that our children must bear the consequences of their mistakes? We've been freed from the consequences of our mistakes. Don't we want our children to have the same experience, the same freely offered gift? And the answer to that question was, yes, I want my children to experience the forgiving grace of God. But God has said the way that they are to experience that is to acknowledge that they are sinners who need a Savior, to repent of their sin, and to turn to Christ in faith. That's how they receive the free gift of salvation. They have a wrong view of God's Word, a wrong view of God, a wrong view of gospel. They have a wrong view of gender roles. This movement is just steeped in humanism, and feminism. Very, very few proponents of this, at least the popular ones, are men. In all of my research, I couldn't find a single one who had written a book or had a successful podcast or uh, had a large following online. It's all women. And when you, when you, and, and by the way, that's not a slam on women, but it is, in, and it is an indication because when you find out who these women are, they are avowed feminists. Sarah Ockwell Smith, who's the one who has most popularized this movement, um, calls herself very clearly a feminist who rejects the patriarchy and wants to replace it with the matriarchy. Furthermore, they are LGBT affirming. That should be a huge red flag to us because when we look in Scripture, there is a divine order of authority that God instituted for the home. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And it is the husband, as he leads his wife, that together they parent the children. You take out the father, you take out the husband component of that, and you have a completely distorted view on the roles of men and women. They have a wrong view, finally, of what godly parenting then looks like. It teaches children to be self-centered. They're supposed to learn to, quote, intrinsically self-regulate. Yet the Bible teaches that self-control, temperance, is a fruit of the Spirit. It's not something that we can drum up in ourselves, but it's something that the Holy Spirit works in us to produce. We need spirit control, not self-control and self-righteousness. Gentle parents are supposed to let their child know that everything revolves around them. 
Quote, parenthood is very simply a beautiful sacrifice that mothers and fathers willingly and lovingly live for their children day after day, night after night as a reflection of the sacrifice Jesus made for his children on the cross. And that, my friend, is a diabolical teaching because parents should not live for their children. Children should not live for their parents. Parents and children alike should live for God and God alone because of him and through him and to him are all things. It teaches children that all emotions are okay. It teaches children that requiring compliance is wrong. Only inviting cooperation is okay. And it teaches children that there is no punishment for sin. As one author summed it up, our children need us to parent them, not punish them. That is the way they view the world. Now, Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to look at tonight. It's a passage that deals extensively with how our Heavenly Father relates to us. So if ever there was a pattern or a picture that would inform how we parent our children, it would be a passage like this that tells us exactly how our Heavenly Father relates to us, especially in the area of disciplining His children. And as we'll see tonight, the truths of the gospel are woven throughout this passage. You cannot separate the gospel message from this. It won't make any sense. It is just steeped throughout this entire section of Scripture. So let's notice, first of all, for some context in verses 1 through 3, the writer of Hebrews describes how we are to live the Christian life, and he illustrates it by the idea of running a race. Let us run the race with patience. Run with patience the race that is set before us, he says in verse number one. He begins the verse by saying, look, look at the cloud of witnesses that we have around us. That's referring back to Hebrews 11, all of those Old Testament saints who did wonderful things by faith. Considering what they did by faith, let us, that is, New Testament believers, lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. He's talking about how to live the Christian life. And in doing so, he reminds us, number one, that it's by faith. Look at the examples from Hebrews chapter 11. Number two, that if we're going to run the race properly, that we have to run fitly. We have to lay aside the weights, and we have to lay aside the sin. Now that little word sin is, is a word that the gentle parenting people don't like because when you say people are sinners, you're implying that they're not intrinsically good. And that's exactly what we're saying because that is the truth of Scripture. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so we're to, to run in faith, we're to run fitly. And then number in verse number two, we're to run with some focus, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He's the example for us. We look at how Jesus lived his life here on this earth, and that is the pattern that we are to follow. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down on the right hand of God. For consider him, verse 3 says, that endured such a contradiction of sinners against him. Notice it didn't say a contradiction of little people with big feelings. It said a contradiction of sinners lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. By focusing on Christ, it gives us endurance to run with patience the race that is set before us. 
Because no matter what we go through here in this life, we will never endure as much as Jesus did as he went through the crucifixion for you and for me. I, I just want to make a special application from verse number 3 to parents tonight. Because parenting is exhausting. It's exhausting. It's tiring, sometimes more so than others. But at all times, it, is, it takes a lot out of you to be the kind of parent that God wants you to be. And the only way that we can have stamina as parents, as Christian parents, is to keep our focus on Christ, to consider Him. No matter how hard it may be parenting those children, your hardship is nothing compared to what Christ did. And if Christ could do that for you, then by the grace of God, you can be the kind of godly, gospel-centered parent that God wants you to be. Living by faith, then, means not allowing anything to hinder our progress toward Christ. We lay aside those weights so that we can run fitly. We endure with patience. We keep our eyes on the goal, the Lord Jesus Christ, and glorifying Him as we grow more like Him. Even as we're learning in our Second Peter study, we have been called to glory and to virtue. Keep His example in mind, the example of Christ, for everything you do in life. As you run this race, remember Jesus. Because following Him and modeling Him... Living by his example, that's what it's all about. He despised the shame. He accomplished his goal. And notice how he received his reward. Verse number two, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He did what was right. He, he accomplished God's will, the Father's will. And as a result of that, he received the reward of pl being placed once again at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the gospel. What Jesus did for us. Sin exists and it has consequences. We are sinners and we deserve death. We deserve to be punished. But Jesus took our punishment. He did what was right so that we could be saved. He was rewarded for it. And when we place our faith in Him, we receive eternal life. So think about how Jesus struggled against sin when you are tempted to give up striving against sin. That's what the writer of Hebrews goes on to say. Look at verse number 4. Ye have not resisted unto blood, striving against sin. You're not, you, have not, you have never and will never struggle as much as Jesus did against sin. So don't give up. Don't quit the struggle. Don't throw in the towel. Don't stop fighting against sin because it's hard. Look to Jesus and keep fighting against sin. Now in this context, he makes a statement in verse number 5. He says, And ye have forgotten the exhortation that speaketh unto you as unto... What's that next word? A little louder for me. I'm getting old and hard of hearing. As unto children. He says, he's writing to a group of pri primarily adults, but he says, you have forgotten this exhortation that was written unto you as unto children, because we are the children of God. 
But as many as believed him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. We have the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. If you are saved, you are a child of God. And the writer of Hebrews says to these believers, who some of them may have given up struggling against sin, he said, you have forgotten this exhortation that God wrote to you. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. And what he does here is he takes the truths of the gospel and he shows us how those apply to our everyday Christian life as it pertains to the heavenly father dealing with us, his children. Now the gospel is the simple message that we are sinners. The penalty of sin is death and that death and hell for all of eternity. But God loved us so much that He sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins and He was buried and rose again. We must then place our faith in Christ to be saved. That's the gospel message. Now notice these truths, how they're woven throughout this passage of Scripture as it's talking about how our Heavenly Father deals with His children. Notice number one, that there is a definite emphasis here on the fact that we are sinners dealing with a sin problem. Now He's mentioned it Uh, Previously in this passage, verse number 1, we're to lay aside the sin which doth so easily beset us. Verse number 3, he talks about the contradiction of sinners against himself. And then verse number 4, you've not resisted unto blood, striving against sin. There's a definite thread here that we are sinners dealing with a sin problem in life. Now before salvation, the problem is the penalty of sin. That's our biggest problem right there. That because of our sin, we deserve to die and go to hell. But after salvation, we are not fully delivered from the presence of sin. And so we are still dealing with the problem of learning how to live like Christ wants us to live by avoiding sin and choosing righteousness. So the first part of the gospel is is already woven into this passage as he talks about how we are struggling against sin. If we think that we're having to struggle against it, think about what Jesus did. His struggle was literally physically greater than any of us will ever go through. And he did that, enduring the penalty of sin and shedding blood for our sin. Now here's an irony that the gentle parenting crowd apparently overlooks. They go to great lengths to say that if you enforce consequences, well, you're robbing the cross of its power. Because they say that the cross means the consequences have already been taken care of. But actually the opposite is true. To teach that there are no consequences for sin is to minimize and disregard the magnitude of what Jesus did for us. It's precisely because sin has consequences and it's precisely because we deserve to be punished that what Jesus did is so powerful. He took what we deserved. And so if you teach children that there are no consequences for sin and you don't deserve to be punished if you do something that's wrong, then you are taking away from them the magnitude of what Jesus did. To teach that sinful acts aren't sinful, which is what that boils down to, does despot unto the Spirit of grace in the words of Hebrews, and goes against what Paul said in Romans 6 and verse number 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? 
Do we ourselves just keep sinning because we're under grace? Do we as parents allow our children just to keep sinning because they're under grace? Or do we say, no, this is an action that God calls sinful, and therefore, as loving parents, we're not going to allow you to continue to do that action. We're going to enforce consequences, and we're going to teach you the right way. There is a definite truth all have sinned, even as, as, as we start in this passage, understanding how a heavenly father deals with his children. But notice also that there's definite understanding here about the penalty of sin. That there is indeed a penalty for sin. That's what our loving heavenly father warned our first parents about, Adam and Eve. Told them, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. There is a consequence for sin. Look, when God says, here's the rule. If we cross that line, we transgress the law, which is God's definition of sin. Whether it's intentional or unintentional, we put ourselves in the position now uh, where we are under the consequence and under the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin is death. Sin still has painful consequences. And a good father will discipline his child so that they learn to do right, so that they avoid the painful consequences and they gain the benefit of righteousness. Again, verse number 5, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. Verse 6, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Let me take a few minutes to talk especially about these verses here. This is actually a quote from the book of Proverbs. If you want to jot in, your, in the margin of your Bible, Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. Let me read those verses to you from Proverbs. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father, the son in whom he delighteth. Let me talk about some of the words that the Holy Spirit used here in these verses. First of all, the word chastening. It's used in several times throughout this passage. Verse 5, the chastening of the Lord. Verse 6, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. The word is defined as chastisement or reproof, warning or instruction or restraint. There's definite and definite idea here of telling someone they're wrong. Not just suggesting, not just trying to point them in a better direction, but saying, no, you're wrong. The word correction has the idea or to, is to correct with a firm hand. In the Greek, the word correcteth in, means to prove, to decide, to judge, or to rebuke. To correct or to be right. To chasten means to cause one to learn. And that's where the gentle parent will stop right there and say that's all that means. But actually you go on and you find that it doesn't mean just a generic kind of learning. But specifically it was used to talk about chastising or castigating with words. That is the use of strong words to mold the character of others by reproof or admonition, to chasten by affliction of evils and calamities. 
It's used of a father punishing his son or of a judge ordering one to be scourged. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. That means God, our loving heavenly father, will deal very firmly with his children when they are out of line, when they need correcting. Even to the point of punishing them so that they see the error of their way. Now some might accuse us of reading into that something that is not there. Look in Hebrews chapter 12, and let me show you that that's exactly the idea of this word, chastening. It's not just a mild correction, but it is something that is very firm, very strong, even to the point of in using physical repercussions to enforce the principles. Look at verse number 11. Now no chasing for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. There's our word chastening there. And the chastening that this passage is talking about is described as not joyous, but grievous. You see that word grievous there? That word grievous has the idea of not just uncomfortable, but very painful. In another place, in fact, in several places, it's translated as sorrow, like the sorrow of a woman who is in labor. Now, I'm just reporting what I've been told, but I've been told that labor pains are not just merely a little uncomfortable. They're actually extremely painful. The chastening that this passage is talking about involves pain. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. The word scourge there literally means to scourge or to whip. It's physical punishment. And so what these verses are talking about is a truth of the gospel that there is a penalty for sin. And even in the context of those who are saved, our Heavenly Father, as He deals with us, He deals with us in a way that is sometimes uncomfortable. Sometimes it causes us a little bit of pain. But He does it because He loves us too much to let us hurt ourselves. And that's what we're doing when we sin. And so He will lovingly chasten us. He will lovingly even scourge us. Why? Well, we'll see that in just a moment. Look at verse number 7 now. For if ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? If we are enduring the chastening of God because we have sin in our life and God is correcting us, God is rebuking us, God is using whatever means are necessary to point us back in the right direction to get us to see our sin, to repent of our sin and to be restored to a right fellowship to Him. If we're going through that, it's because God's dealing with us with, as with sons. That's actually a good thing. That's actually an encouraging thing even if it doesn't feel good at the time. A wise father will teach his children using both positive reinforcement and negative punishment. And by the way, it should not be an either or. And here is where the problem comes in, is that many times the gentle parenting crowd will point to the abusive fathers and mothers 
and say, well, we don't want to do it like that, so we're going to do it this way, and they go to the opposite extreme. There should be a balance here. We are in no way making a case that fathers and mothers should be only ever using physical force to bring their children into compliance. That's not what we're saying. But proper discipline involves both the positive reinforcement and the negative punishment. There's a balance there. Proverbs 19, 18, Chasten, there's that word again, Chasten thy son while there is hope, and let not thy soul spare for his crying. Some would say, well, that just means teach him things. Well, why is he crying about it then? There's an implication here that that chastening might involve some firm dealings with that child, even to the point of, 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 of causing mild physical pain to reinforce the lesson being taught. But the gentle parent says, well, you know what? If you do that, you're creating con- uh, um, tension, you're creating division, you're pushing the child away, They're, you're teaching them they can't trust you because now they see you as a source of pain. And they'll cite all kinds of studies to support uh, whatever point of view they have there. Well, let me ask you this question then. Does negative discipline in the form of punishment necessarily create resentment? The gentle parent says, yes, always, 100% every time. But that's not what the Bible says. Look at verses 8 and 9. But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? The word reverence there, it's the idea of respect. It's used in Matthew 21, 37 in the parable that Jesus told. But the last, uh, last of all, He sent unto them His Son, saying, They will reverence My Son. They will respect Him. They beat and they killed all the other servants. Surely they won't treat My Son like that. They'll treat Him with respect. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that if you look at how earthly children respond to their fathers, when their fathers correct them properly, there is respect there. So how much more should we respect our Heavenly Father when He corrects us? And then it says that we should be in subjection under the Father of Spirits. Why does Heavenly Father chasten us? Why does He scourge us? Among other things, it's to remind us of where we should be in relation to Him. We should be in subjection. We should be submitted to Him, to the Father. His will, not our own. That's the idea. Literally means to subordinate yourself to. To submit to one's control. Well, that's a big thing the gentle parenting crowd hates. You don't control other people. That's the problem with teaching obedience. That's just a tactic to manipulate and control other people. But look, all of us need to be in submission to God's control of our life. And by the way, every one of us has all varying levels of submission to authority that we have to submit to. We have to submit to someone else's control. I don't get to decide how fast I drive on the road. I have to submit to someone else's control in that. I don't get to decide how much I pay in sales tax when I go buy groceries. I have to submit to someone else's authority in that. That is just a part of life. 
Now all of this I'm grouping under this idea of the fact that there is a penalty for sin. That's a part of the gospel message. And if we teach our children, there's no penalty. There's no consequences. There's no negative. It's all positive. Number one, we're teaching them a lie. Number two, we're turning them away from the gospel message. But here's the, another part of the gospel. We, gotta, we have to have the whole message. Because the gospel goes on to say that God loved us so much that He sent Jesus to die for our sins. And notice how that is also in this passage. Back in verse number 6, For whom the Lord loveth. There you have the love of the Father, right there, as the pretext for everything else. Whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth. And scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. The word receiveth there is the idea of acceptance. And that's what verses 7 through 9 are really talking about. Is that if God is chastening you, it's because he accepts you. Not because he rejects you. Because earthly fathers, if they're doing things right, they don't go out and chasten and scourge other people's sons. It's their own children that they deal with. It's their own children that they bring up properly. It's their own children that they train up in the way that they should go. And so God deals with us as with His own children because whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth. That's the beginning of the gospel. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And let me say right here, this is the missing component that results in abusive parenting. Christ-like love. Parents who are not parenting in Christ-like love, that is selfless, sacrificial love, are not parenting correctly. That's how you end up physically abusive. That's how you end up emotionally and psychologically abusive when you're not parenting in Christ-like love. And I want to point out something in this passage that there is a definite emphasis on the father figure. Have you noticed that? A definite emphasis here. Fatherly love is powerful. Let me say to every dad here today, granddad, great-granddad, all of us, fatherly love is powerful. And it is what is sorely needed in our world today. I'm talking about men being men who are the kind of husbands that God wants them to be, and the kind of fathers that God wants them to be. Beware of the danger of feminized fatherhood. That's what we're facing today. We're having women telling men how to be fathers. No, we need to let our Heavenly Father tell us how to be a father. That means if you're a wise man, you're going to listen to and appreciate and respect your wife's point of view. But be a man. You're going to relate to your child differently than your wife does. And this is something that sometimes is hard for couples to figure out. A father is going to act like a father, and that's very different from a mother. And that's by God's design. When mothers act like fathers, or when fathers act like mothers, things are mixed up, things are backward. Inevitably, it's going to lead to chaos and confusion. So dad, be a father and love your children as a father. That's going to look a little different. There's a reason you can go online and you can find page after page of dad jokes. 
but not mom jokes, okay? <laughs> it's just a difference, and that's not just okay. That's the way it's supposed to be by God's design. Father, you provide a vital balance to the parenting relationship. Proper discipline must spring from a heart of selfish, sacrificial love that acts only for the good of the one who is loved. Look down at verse number 10 now. For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. A father must discipline his child for their true good, not out of anger, not out of annoyance that's wrong, but to do it truly for their own good, for their own profit, that they might be partakers of His holiness. Now, God deals with us that way, but think about the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ took the chastening, took the scourging, took the punishment for our profit, for our benefit, that we might be partakers of His holiness in a perfect way. And so we have here the gift of God that is a part of the gospel message. Fathers, as you discipline your children and mothers too, be consistent, be spirit-filled and spirit-controlled. Don't be selfish. Imperfect earthly fathers and mothers often chasten inconsistently and selfishly. And that's not a justification, that's just a statement of fact. God, on the other hand, only chastens us for our benefit to produce practical holiness by the avoidance of sin and active righteousness. That's the point of the chastening, to get us to stop sinning so that we will enjoy the peaceable fruits of righteousness. Now that chastening, will it hurt? Yes. But will it harm? No. And there is a difference. Sometimes things hurt, but they're for our good. We have a hard time accepting that. But it's like surgery that one might have to remove a cancer. Will the surgery hurt? Yes. But it's ultimately not for our harm, but for our good. In the same way, the Lord chastens us not for... His, simply for His pleasure, but He does it for our good. Verse 11, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness to them which are exercised thereby. Now I want you to notice with me the word afterward in verse number 11. There's a sequence here. You have the the sin by the child. You have the correction by the father. And then you have the afterward, the result. What comes after that? Well, the goal is the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And that comes when the one who has been chastened recognizes their sin, accepts the rebuke, and repents of their sin. Then they're restored to a right fellowship. That's the sequence here. And it's the same sequence that as parents, we should take our children through. They've sinned, they've done something wrong, so there must be a rebuke. There must be a correction. There may need to be chastening. There may need to be enforcement to get them to understand the error of their way. 
But our goal is that they would recognize that, that they would repent, and that they would be restored. Remember what we talked about. If there's no rebuke, there's no repentance, there's no redemption. And so the gospel message applied to parenting means that we rebuke our children, we chasten them, we, we correct them so that they might enjoy the peaceable fruit of righteousness. I love how it says in verse 11 that this fruit is yielded to those which are exercised thereby, that is, by the chastening of the Lord. The word exercise there um, is the word we get our English word gym, gymnasium, gymnastics from. Literally means to be physically exercised or to train to use or to be disciplined in something. Several times in scripture the word exercise is used for this word um, to describe the process of, of, of doing the hard work to accomplish some sort of discipline. And chastening and scourging are all a part of the disciplining process required for us to become mature Christians. Well, what is the last part of salvation? It is that salvation must be received by grace through faith. And I believe we see that in verses 12 and 13. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down in the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. You know, these verses were not written to discourage believers. They were written to encourage them. Hey, God... You may be going through some chastening, but that's because God loves you, because God accepts you. You're His child, and He wants you to correct your way so that you can enjoy the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Be encouraged, be strengthened that, hey, this is a part of a good process that ultimately results in your benefit. The point of discipline is to encourage the discouraged, to strengthen the weak. Verse 13 is very poetic in nature. It says, make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Okay, who's the lame here in this picture? Raise your hand. Okay, that's you and me. What are we lame by? What are we hindered by? What are we injured by? Sin. We're injured by sin. We're lame. Well, what's the best way if a person, let's say a person's twisted their ankle and, and they're limping, what's the best way to help them out continue to make progress if they're trying to get from point A to point B? Are you going to throw a bunch of chairs in their path? Are you going to, you know, take the bucket of Legos and dump it out for them and laugh maniacally when they step on them? I mean, what are you going to do for them? No, you're going to help them out. You're going, to, you're going to clear the path, make sure it's straight, make sure there's no obstacles. You're going to make it easy for them so that they don't get hurt anymore, but rather so that they, verse 13, let it rather be healed. Make straight the path. Make it easy for them to walk upright, and it will bring healing, is what it's saying. Walking uprightly doesn't harm. The gentle parent says, well, if you force your children to do this, this, and this, you're harming them. You're robbing them of their individuality and all of this stuff. No. When you make it easy for someone to walk uprightly, you're not harming. You're bringing healing. Chastening hurts, but it doesn't harm. 
it heals. This is a gospel outline for parenting, you see. We have to accept God's chastening by faith and realize that whatever God's doing in our life, it's for our good and ultimately will bring healing. In the same way that we have to accept the fact that we're sinners and we need a Savior and that Jesus Christ died for our sin and when we do place our faith in that, we're saved. And it's the same way as parents, we ought to deal with our children. They need to know they're sinners, that there's a penalty for sin, but that there is forgiveness and redemption through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that what they're being taught to do is for their benefit. It's not a matter of one human just simply wanting to control a smaller, shorter human. That's not what it's about. That's not gospel parenting. It's wanting to teach children that there's a Savior who loves them, who died for them, and He paid the penalty for their sin so that they could be free. And if they would accept Him, He would save them too. Children are sinners in need of a Savior. So don't teach them that they're perfect. Teach them that they're flawed, but God loves them anyway. Children are in danger of the consequences of sin. So teach them that sin has consequences. And every choice brings either desirable or undesirable consequences. Your children are loved by God so much that Jesus died and rose again to save them. Teach them that and then model God's love, not conditional on their behavior, unconditional based on your relationship. Love them selflessly, love them sacrificially, love them enough to do the hard things and chasten them so that they can be put on the right path, the path to healing. Your children must have faith in the gospel to be saved. So teach them that a life of faith in Christ is the only answer to the world's problems. They can't depend on themselves. They can't intrinsically self-regulate themselves into righteousness. They can't follow the desires of their heart and their own free will. They must choose to live for God and God alone. He is Lord and He wants to be their Savior. That is gospel parenting. Heavenly Father... I know this subject is one that is dear and very close to all hearts. As we think about the children that you've entrusted to us, they are special to us. And Lord, I believe that every Christian parent wants to do the right thing. But often it's so confusing what that actually looks like in practice. So Lord, I pray that if nothing else, this message tonight would help reset our thinking about parenting to look at it through the lens of the gospel and to consider how these truths should apply to our regular everyday interactions. And Lord, I know that there are many here tonight who may not have children still in the home, but a lot have grandchildren and they're involved in their grandchildren's lives and, and they can be a part of this process of, of bringing the gospel home and applying it in our everyday life. And Lord, for the young people that are here tonight, the children still in the homes, may they understand tonight that they are sinners 
But even though they're sinners, you love them so much that you sent Jesus to die for their sin. And if they've never trusted Christ as their Savior or anyone in here tonight, Lord, I pray that you would convict them of their need of a Savior and that they would trust Jesus to save them. I pray these things in Jesus' name.